The sound of the heavy blade cutting into the dirt of yet another grave could be heard over the heavy pounding rain. It was near dawn, but we were determined to keep our family safe, no matter. Then the sound shifted, and I heard the blade hit wood. Thud. My heart thundered in my chest. It didn't take long to unearth the coffin. Holding my breath, I jammed my pry bar under the lid and pulled. The lid flew off with such force. Where my sister's body had been just a week ago lay an empty box. She was gone. In the distance, I could just make out the muffled, horrifying screams of my mother. We were too late. Welcome to Destination Terror, your passport to the scariest places in the world. From haunted hotels to locations of unexplained creature sightings, we will travel to places that will provide excitement, adventure, and horror. Today, we're discussing the Great New England Vampire Panic in 19th century New England. The incident spilled into a large portion of the northeastern settlements, but we are focusing on Griswold, Connecticut. So if you're into travel and all things scary, listen close and you might just discover your next exciting adventure destination. But hopefully, not your final destination. Destination Terror is an EerieCast original podcast hosted by me, Carmen Carrion. If you would like to send us a suggestion or submit a story with your own experience, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. If you enjoy the show, please follow and rate Destination Terror on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to help us grow. Also, check out EerieCast.com for more scary podcasts, such as Freaky Folklore, the podcast where together we explore horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. Elizabeth was the name given to me at birth but my mother called me Lizzie. My brothers called me Trouble. If only they were all still here to call me those things. But the truth is, they're all dead, and I'm all alone. I don't remember much of the merciless journey across the sea. I was but a dinky child. They weren't even sure if I'd survive such a journey. There were many souls hurled into the abyss, but to my surprise, I wasn't one of them. My parents had received word that workers were needed across the sea. My father saw a new world with endless possibilities. He wasn't wrong. I also know he could have never foreseen the peril we would have later found ourselves enveloped in. My father was a fourth-generation farmer, and since the colonies needed farmers to feed the growing population, it seemed like a perfect fit for our family. It wasn't long before the gardens were thriving, Everything seemed perfect. Too perfect, in fact. My mother and I had walked into town one afternoon to gather some supplies when I overheard a couple of farmers from the nearby borough. They were speaking in low voices, like they didn't want anyone else to hear. Being the nosy child that I was, I got closer, but not too close. I heard the older man with the brushy beard say, You weren't there, you fool. You didn't see it. A younger man replied, Don't tell me what I did or didn't see. The younger man with the stringy hair sounded very defensive. 
A third man stepped forward to halt their bickering. He's right. I saw it with my own eyes, too. I helped bury that child months ago. But when she was pulled from the ground today, she still had blood running through her veins. The third man said with such fear in his eyes. The small group of men erupted in argument. I thought they were going to start fighting right there in the street. Until one voice rang out above the crowd. Vampire! My blood ran cold. I remember stories from back home about vampires. Nothing good could come of vampires. I had gotten so caught up in the men now full-on brawling in the street. I had lost track of time and it was starting to get dark. I realized I had snuck away from my mother to listen in on the men and wasn't sure where she would be now. I walked around the street calling her name, but I wasn't able to find her. I was starting to get frightened as dusk was really settling in. That's when I saw her through the small dark gap between two buildings on the opposite street. I darted through the gap as fast as I could, my heart racing. If I didn't catch her, smack. I ran face first into a man. I think it was a man anyways. It was too dark in here. I hurried back to my feet, not wasting any time. I turned to apologize to the man, but to my horror, it wasn't a man at all. It was a, 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 a vampire. I screamed and ran faster than I ever ran before into the arms of my mother. The screaming attracted her to the small gap I came shooting out of. I was so scared I didn't even realize I had started crying. My mother shook me trying to calm me down. Once I had calmed, she tried to get me to describe what I'd seen, but I was too in shock to speak. She grabbed me by the arm and practically dragged me towards our farm. Me sneaking off had put us on the path home far too late. The sun had gone down completely, and if it weren't for the lanterns my father had placed at the gate, I'm not sure we would have known which way to go. Mama, I think I saw a vampire. Mama coughed. I think I made my mother choke. No, 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 honey. Those are just stories. Vampires aren't real. I don't think anyways. I'm sure what you saw was terrifying, but, well, what exactly did you see? A branch snapped, and we both turned in the direction of the sound. We were close enough that the lanterns were able to illuminate a tall, slender silhouette, but nothing more. Can I help you? It's awfully late to be out wandering around in the dark, my mother said with a concerned tone, although I wasn't sure if it was for the stranger's safety or ours. No response. But the silhouette was coming closer. With each step it took, we took a step back. My mother reached for one of the lanterns and brought it around in front of us. My heart was absolutely thundering at this point. What we saw was a thing from nightmares. It was the same man I'd seen in town. He must have followed us. Only I was sure this time. I knew what I had seen, and that was no man. His skin was a creamy white. His eyes were drooping and had a glazed-over look. 
His skin was covered in scabs and was in varying states of decay. His clothes were torn and covered in soil and mud. He made a low gurgling noise as he outstretched one of his bony, disgusting hands towards my mother. She hurled the lantern at the thing and shoved me towards the house, screaming for me to run. I didn't hesitate. I ran. Ran as fast as I could, screaming for my father. He and my two older brothers met me on the porch, trying to catch my breath to explain. But all I could get out was, Mama, Gate, help. I had never seen my father scared until that moment. We heard the screams from my mother. My father grabbed his rifle that had been leaned up by the front door and bolted toward the sound of her screams. We all followed, but we weren't nearly as fast. And as quick as it had begun, it ended with the sound of my father shouting and a shot from his rifle. My father was helping my mother to her feet. She was crying and covered in blood, though I wasn't sure if any of it was hers. It wasn't until she was carried into the house with more lighting to be examined that we saw the extent of her injuries. The bastard bit me, my mother said with disgust. She had a large bite mark on her shoulder. Looked more like she'd been mauled by a dog than a person. The wound was deep. My mother explained to my father what she had seen. It wasn't that he didn't believe her. It was just hard to believe. That's when I decided to tell him everything I'd overheard the men arguing about earlier, and the thing I'd seen in town. The creature was exactly what they had described. The man, the creature, they were one and the same. When I was done, no one spoke for a long while until father spoke. We'll have to wait for morning to call the physician. No one goes back outside tonight. He didn't have to worry about me wanting to go back outside for the rest of my life. All that I'd seen that day was enough to keep me in for a very long time. Come morning, one of my brothers went to fetch the physician for mom's wound. She seemed to be doing okay that morning. She was weak and still very shaken from the attack. My father and eldest brother had hitched the wagon to the horses and were headed to get the body. It had been too dark to do anything last night. There were several of the local men waiting out by the posts where the lanterns had been hung last night. My father told us later that as he approached, his stomach had turned from the stench. He said the body looked like a rotting corpse, but it had only been hours since he had shot him. He explained the events that had played out last night but they were all in shock and disbelief. This person looked like it had been dead for days. While they were still discussing what to do next, my brother showed up with the physician and a few others from town. With them were two of the men I had seen arguing about vampires yesterday. They wasted no time pushing their way through the small crowd to inspect the body. The man with the beard spoke first. This man was in my wagon yesterday. I had picked him up from the next town over. His son was convinced he was a vampire and had been sucking the life out of the youngest child in the family. Gasps rang out among the crowd as he continued. I thought the young man to be crazy until I saw it for myself. They had dug the man up and cut open his chest to find it still full of fresh blood. They had asked that I take him elsewhere to dispose of him. 
I had planned on reburying him at the cemetery down the river. But after the brawl in town yesterday, he was gone. I assumed someone that had overheard the arguing took his body, thinking it would be a great joke. After a brief discussion amongst the group, they decided it was best to dispose of the body permanently. I had never witnessed the burning of a person before, and I hoped I'd never have to again. The smell was horrendous. With everything that had taken place in the past day, there were a lot of scared people starting together around our farm. How had a corpse attacked my mother? Everyone had a theory, but the two men were adamant that the man was a vampire. I remembered old scary stories that my gran used to tell us before she died. I always thought she was trying to scare us enough to keep us from wandering off after dark. I never imagined they'd be true. The physician cleaned my mother's shoulder and told her she'd be just fine. But I knew better. In Grant's stories, all it took was a bite from a vampire to infect the person they bit. And once they had been bitten, they would die. The next week felt odd, like a fog had fallen over the town. Everyone was terrified of coming anywhere near my mother. Especially now. The bite mark hadn't healed well, and my mother was getting sicker by the day. Until one morning, she didn't wake up. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you think about vampires, your thoughts are of modern-day renditions of the bloodsucker. Immortal beings that stay young and live forever off the blood of the living and burst into flames if they step into the sun. Or, depending on your choice of literature, they sparkle like a disco ball. Either way, according to history, Neither of those are the kind of bloodsuckers you'd fall prey to during the Great New England Vampire Panic in 19th century New England. The incident spilled into a large portion of the northeastern settlements, but we're focusing on Griswold, Connecticut. The farmers in Griswold fell prey to the Vampire Panic. They believed the dead were rising from their graves and draining the life from their living family members. The farmers did the only thing they knew to do. Exhume the dead, rip out their hearts, and set the remains on fire. These methods were unsuccessful. 
And that's because consumption, better known as tuberculosis, was the true culprit for the deaths. The disease sucked the life from its victims, slowly and painfully. People in this time didn't understand infectious disease or how it spread. It was common for one family member to spread the disease to their entire family. They would spend a lot of time in close quarters in the winter months, which provided the perfect environment for consumption to take hold and take over. The colonists brought the disease with them to New England, as well as many of their beliefs and customs about vampires. It was a natural reaction for the farmers settling in Griswold to assume these were the same creatures to plague their homeland and to carry on treating it as such. Griswold is one of the earliest colonies in America. It was settled in the latter part of the 1600s by colonists attempting to expand New England's colonies. We're able to trace some of the earliest arrivals in the colony back to 1669. That's over a hundred years before the birth of our nation in 1776. There were many disputes over who controlled the land. The area was originally home to the Mohegan tribe, which dwelled near Pequot. The tribe had originally descended from the upper Hudson River Valley in modern-day New York, but sometime in the 1500s, they relocated to the Thames River Valley in southeastern Connecticut, which occupied a portion of the Thames River, and that area later became Griswold. The Mohegan people were the initial owners of the area, but that didn't stop the rivalry between the colony of Connecticut and the Mohegan tribe for control over the soil. The colony had been granted the land by the Uncas of Connecticut that allowed them to buy all the land that wasn't conserved for planting grounds. Though they were granted such permissions to purchase the land, the Mohegans still held authority over the soil. It was deemed safe to build farms only after it was granted by the Mohegan chief. In 1640, the colony paid the Uncas 35 pounds of silver, a few pairs of stockings, and five yards of cloth for the lands within Griswold's boundaries. 35 pounds of sterling is worth approximately $12,000 today. In 1669, years after the land had been purchased, settlers from Stonington, Norwich, and Southern Preston came together to establish Griswold. Some of the earliest settlers found themselves near the Pachelg River. In 1686, the settlers petitioned the legislation of the Connecticut colonies for incorporation. Once incorporated, the boundary lines were vague and caused many disputes later over land. By 1715, the population had grown immensely, and the need for a form of self-government was in demand. In 1720, the first meeting house and church were erected at the site in Pachog, where the Pachog Congregational Church stands today. It had become clear that the area was well sought after, and many more people would flock to the area. Such rapid growth brought many opportunities to those who were already established and to those to come. But with the influx of settlers, they would also bring disease and beliefs. By the time the American Revolution came to pass in 1776, the legends from the immigrants' homelands all over the European continent had made their way to the Americas. The extent of the vampire panic didn't come to light for more than a century after it had already transpired when bones had been found by children playing on a hillside near a gravel mine in Hopeville, located within the boundaries of Griswold. One of the children took a skull home to their mother. The local authorities immediately turned the area into a crime scene, assuming the burials were the doing of Michael Ross, a local serial killer, 
However, the state of the bones told a very different story. They were brown and well over a hundred years old. Nick Bellantoni, an archaeologist from the state of Connecticut, was brought in and discovered the site originally contained a cemetery from the colonial era. This was typical in New England in the 17 and 1800s. Entire families would be buried in unmarked graves on their farms. There was a total of 29 bodies exhumed during the excavation of the site. Many of the graves belonged to young children. Their bodies were laid to rest in what they called a thrifty Yankee style. They have few clothes, no jewelry, in simple wood coffins, with crosses laid upon their chests and their arms by their sides, all except one, burial number four. The burial had caught Bell and Tony's attention well before the excavation had even begun. There were only two stone crypts on the site, and number four was one of them. They were very precise during their excavation. They used special tools to make sure that nothing would be damaged in the process. Several feet of soil were removed before they reached the top of the crypt. The crypt was made up of several large flat rocks. When the first one was removed, it revealed what was left of a red painted coffin and a pair of feet. He described the feet as being in perfect anatomical position. However, with the removal of more stones, he couldn't say that for the remainder of the skeleton. The archaeologists were stunned. They had never seen anything quite like this before. The skeleton had been beheaded. The skull and the thigh bones laid on top of the vertebrae and ribs resembling skull and crossbones. Perhaps the strangest part of the finding was that this had occurred five years after the person had already died. Whoever was responsible for the desecration of the body had also smashed the coffin. After the exhumation of the site was complete, all the skeletons were packaged for reburial, all but number four, which had received the nickname J.B. The name came from a small plate on his coffin with the initials J.B. His remains were sent to Washington, D.C., to the National Museum of Health and Medicine for further study. Perplexed by his findings, Bell and Tony invited many archaeologists to the site in order to determine J.B.'s fate and what had occurred there so many years ago. They had many theories, but none of them felt correct. Vandalism and robbery seemed unlikely, considering the lack of valuables buried within the site. Until one day a colleague asked if he had ever heard of the Jewett City Vampires. Bell and Tony then enlisted the help of a Rhode Island folklorist by the name of Michael Bell. Bell had spent the last decade studying the exhumations in New England that were thought to be vampires. Bell was able to confirm that the panic reached parts of Rhode Island, and there was a good chance that whatever had occurred to J.B.'s body was linked to the panic in Jewett City as well. Jewett City was originally called Pachog City, but was renamed in 1771 to honor the man that started the settlement and built many mills to help the area thrive. It was a borough in the northwestern sector of Griswold, situated on the Pachog River. The city and its inhabitants were no strangers to the supernatural. Though it had been many years after the burning of over 40 accused witches, the people still lived in a paranoid state when it came to the things they couldn't comprehend. There were several reports of grave desecration in Jewett City, very similar to how they found J.B.'s skeleton in Hopeville, two miles to the east. 
The paranoid residents of Jewett thought that corpses were rising from their graves in the dead of night and feeding from the living. The town had exhumed and destroyed many of the dead to prevent further deaths, or so they thought. Entire families had fallen to consumption, and the only way they could rationalize it was vampires. It seemed that many of the areas in Griswold had fallen prey to this panic. There were several newspaper articles that survived through time, spreading the paranoia to those that wouldn't know any better. They provided details on how to identify a vampire. They judged the vampire's authenticity based off the corpse's state of decomposition and if there was still blood remaining in the heart or other organs. When a family member would fall ill soon after the death of another, they would exhume the body in order to determine if it were a bloodsucker. The Ray's family that lived in Jewett City were one of the many that fell to this illness. Over the course of nine years, the entire family fell sick. The disease took the youngest son in 1845. Then a few short years later, their father passed as well. Two years after that, the middle brother had fallen ill. The eldest brother, Henry, was terrified. He had lost his entire family. There were suspicions that the family had a vampire problem. Henry became desperate. He didn't want to fall like the rest of his family had. Other locals had convinced Henry that his family had fallen to vampirism. Henry was reluctant but ultimately agreed to having their bodies exhumed and mutilated. Their headstones still stand in a small graveyard nestled in the heart of Jewett City. It's unclear of Henry's fate, but we do know. If he did perish from consumption, he wasn't buried with his family. One of the most famous cases of this panic was that of Mercy Brown in the neighboring state of Rhode Island in 1892. It was well documented, which eventually led to the discovery of many cases involved in the panic. The Brown family suffered from consumption over the course of many years. The mother, Mary Eliza, would be the first to succumb to the disease. Then their daughter, Mary Olive, died next. It was after the death of their last child, Mercy, that the town had convinced the father, George Brown, that his family were vampires. They got his permission to dig up the family and examine their bodies. They found Mary Eliza and Mary Olive's corpses decomposed, past the point of any possibilities that they were vampires. However, the same cannot be said for Mercy. Her blood had been well preserved, and they found blood still in her organs. This was because she had died and was buried in an above-ground crypt in the dead of winter. The weather had preserved her body extremely well. The knowledge simply wasn't there for people to know any better. Like other vampires, Mercy's body was mutilated. They removed her heart and liver. Then they burned it, turning it to ashes. The ashes were given to the remaining son in a tonic to ingest. They thought they could use that to heal the brother, though they were unsuccessful. These are just a couple of cases that have come to light. There are several dozen accounts in Griswold alone over the course of a hundred years. Bell has studied over 80 sites that had been exhumed, desecrated or burned. He believes there are still hundreds more just waiting to be unearthed. The panic was not a short-lived event. It plagued the region for more than a century. And depending on which stories you believed, there was more to the panic than just those that died from consumption. Like all legends, they have a beginning. The vampire panic could mostly be blamed on the lack of knowledge and people dying from illnesses. But there are just as many stories that have been passed down through generations 
that paint a very terrifying picture. There were many souls that believed they had already been attacked by a vampire. But the truth is, we'll never really know. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Our family gathered around my mother's grave to pay our respects. We dug a hole near her flower garden. It was her favorite place to be. It was too cold for any flowers to grow, but we managed to put together some greenery for her. I'd say we did the best we could over the next month, with Mama gone. But winter was in full swing, and we were struggling, especially since Father had fallen ill. Since his illness, the townsfolk wouldn't come near our farm or buy our food. They were convinced my mother was a vampire and slowly killing my father. While there was no proof of this, he did seem to be dying the same way she had. My brothers and I tried to squash the rumors, but it just seemed to make them more suspicious of us. My father knew we couldn't go on like this for much longer so he got in touch with his sister back home. He let her know of his condition and that we'd likely be orphans soon. He had already started planning to send us back across the sea. We buried father right next to our mother. We didn't speak that night at the dinner table until my oldest brother noticed something moving outside. There's something out there he said with a touch of unsteadiness in his voice. He got up from the table and stalked over to the window. It was too dark to make out much, but he could see flickers of light out by my mother's flower garden. He grabbed his coat and father's rifle that was still leaning up on the wall by the door and headed for the lights. The closer he got, the more he realized what was going on. Some of the farmers were digging up mother's grave. They intended to burn her. He picked up the rifle and pointed it at the men, told them to step away or he'd shoot. One of the men told him he'd have to shoot them all. That's when my brother threw down his rifle and ran full speed into the man, tackling him to the ground. My brother was only 16, but he was large for his age, and he was strong, but not strong enough. My other brother slammed into another one of the men, but it didn't take him down. He was much smaller and younger. He didn't stand a chance. I was far too scared to go near any of them, so I hid behind a nearby tree. They had subdued my brothers and tied them to the tree next to my parents' graves. 
giving them a front row seat to everything that happened next. The men dug and dug until they found the coffins. They didn't bother taking either of them out of the hole. They tossed a few torches in on top of the wooden boxes and set them ablaze. And then I heard one of the men shout, They're empty! Empty? How could they be empty? We had put father in the ground just this morning. It all became very clear when two figures stepped out from behind the large tree my brothers were tied to. I whirled around and put my back to the tree. I closed my eyes as hard as I could. I put my hands over my ears. But it wasn't enough to drown out the screams and the sound of gunfire. I don't know how long I was hidden behind the tree, but it had gone silent, all except for the sound of the fire crackling. I peeked around the tree to find my brothers, but nothing could have ever prepared me for what I found. The large tree they had been tied to was completely engulfed in flames, and remnants of their bodies still clung to the base of the tree. There were several bodies scattered around the ground still burning. That's when I noticed the soft whimpers of someone still alive. Someone burning alive. I wanted to help. I took two steps around the tree to head for the burning bodies. When I saw a figure standing at the edge of the flames, I couldn't make out any features. But I did notice that it was wearing the gown we had buried my mother in. A voice in my head told me to run. And run like hell I did. Thank you for joining us on our journey through the vampire panic in the town of Griswold, Connecticut. Tune in next week as we discuss another terrific location. I'm Carmen Carrion. Remember, you can send me suggestions and stories of haunted places to my email, carmencarrion at gmail.com, or follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. Go to eeriecast.com to find other terrifying podcasts such as Freaky Folklore, Hosted by me, Carmen Carrion. Until next time, be safe out there. Until I see you at our next destination.